Hello, and welcome back to 10 Terabyte Hard Drive. My name is Joe Greenwood, and this is our review of the Paul Schrader film, The Canyons, from 2013. Schrader, this is before he became everyone's favourite uh, film uncle, great-uncle, grandfather, whatever <laughs> whatever part of your film family you want to give him, that's what he is. Uh, before his late career renaissance, this is the film that prompted that. You know, the sort of hitting new lows. It reminds me of the is it Mark Maron's joke where he says, um, "Hitting, you know, I hit rock, bo- rock bottom." Turns out there's a lot of give. Uh, obviously, he didn't stammer through it like an idiot, like I did. But hey ho, that's just me. Um, as per usual, I'm joined by my regular co-host Gareth, and we're going to go long and deep into the canyons because it's a film that actually really merits it it's a uh, interesting piece of work either through its history its production the ideas it's trying to present whether it does it successfully or not whether the performances are quote good or not whether the writing is quote good or not um you know it's it's a fascinating movie to discuss and uh, i hope you agree Obviously, you can uh, find the film at the link below in the uh, episode description. You can also email us at 10tbharddrivepod at gmail.com. Anyway, enough of the, the warm-up. Let's get into the good stuff. Uh, we're discussing The Canyons, directed by Paul Schrader, written by Brett Easton Ellis, and starring Lindsay Lohan and James Dean. Okay, tell me something. Yes. Do you really like movies? I really, really like movies. When's the last time you went to see a movie in a theater? You know, a movie that you really thought meant something to you. I don't know, you know, I guess maybe it's just not my thing anymore. Yeah, the Canyons is kind of like this... It's this weird, like... It feels like a blotch on everyone's career, either as, like, a real, like, down (laughs) negative point of, like, Schrader's career you know, or Lindsay Lohan's, or like a weird kind of peak for the other people in there. Because if you look at everyone else, they've kind of got like the same careers as like the people that star in the director video American Pie films, where it's like, that's the highest rated <laughs> thing on Letterboxd that they've seen. And then everything else they've done is some whatever <laughs> horror movie in Bulgaria um, that didn't go anywhere. I don't know. It's kind of like a sad, you know, what, actually go on the career IMDb's of the actors in a American Pie director video film and it's quite a depressing look of like they had this huge moment in an American Pie director video film and then nothing else and it's like god it's like they got chewed up and spat out <laughs> in the you know the Stifler complex you know I don't know mm. I, feel, I feel like the canyons is kind which of similar. Is very, which is very thematically on point for the canyons as well yeah like yeah um, sh- how are we gonna like dive into the canyons? Really, like, what is our, our tourist approach? Because there's about five different auteurs, if you will, to this film. Like, you got Schrader, <laughs> you got Ellis, you got Lohan, you've got James Dean, and you've also got the Canon 7D uh, look, uh, which was a sort yes. of blotch on indie films and short films for a, a period of time um, of that era. All right, let, let, let me ask this then. What do you reckon is the strongest authorial voice in the movie? Great, yeah, great opening question. Um, 
as you say, I think one of the richest aspects of the film is this notion of uh, of kind of competing authorial voices. Yeah. And I think without that um, substance, uh, the film would kind of lose something. Although you, you, you could probably reasonably mount an argument that would suggest that is something that um, creates the film as it is, uh, being of, you know, arguably uh, a lesser quality or... You know, I've, I've, I've been reading a lot about um, some of the more, let's say, normie takes on the movie and, you know, that very much the film is viewed in kind of non-film uh, centric or, or film or, or kind of tourist circles, uh, so to speak, um, as, a, as a kind of analogue to something like The Room, mm. where every aspect of it is just fucking bad. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a nice. It's a nice. Uh, in that sense, it's it ties it ties nicely to something like Showgirls, which we discussed last time, uh, where it kind of toys with those notions of good and bad in a way that I think you and I will proceed to argue is is very deliberate and gives its gives the movie a mm. lot of its kind of like um, thematic and stylistic uh, context, substance, whatever. Mm. Um, I think the most to go back to your original question. I think the the for me the most compelling author within it is this is really tough between Schrader and, and Ellis because mm. the the film that Ellis wanted to make it feels clear wasn't made. Yes, but then because Ellis had a kind of a notion of of the film that you and I'll probably go on to discuss. Mm. Um, Schrader gives it. I think Schrader is, let's say Schrader for now is the dominant auteur. Um, yes. Everything that the Canyons, is, I mean, that, that's kind of standard, isn't it? You'd expect that from the director. But given the way that this film is made, and again, it's something we'll kind of unpack as we go, hmm. um, it was very much a case of like th- uh, three people, including, including the producer, who, again, bad with names, but you'll probably remind me. Um, they all Braxton had very Pope? distinct ideas of. Yes, Pope, Brexton Pope, that's right. I think they all had very competing ideas of what the film was supposed to be and what it was supposed to look like. And that works on a kind of multifaceted level. Um, but I, I think Schrader shrines, sh- uh, sh- shrines? Sh- Schrader yeah. shines through the most um, because I think he's going to be the one that comes away with it most kind of satisfied that the end product is made in his image. Mm. Um, so the film, the film isn't the film without obviously the influence of Pope and certainly Ellis. Mm. But I think the one who kind of got his way, so to speak, was Schrader. Mm. Um, and that is a very problematized view in the way that how this film sits in Schrader's filmography. But then on your recommend, Joe, I've been looking at a lot of Schrader films um, that I hadn't seen mm. Um as a result of rewatching the canyons, which I've I've always kind of been a bit of a fan of, and seeing that outliers and weird projects are kind of very much part and parcel of the Schrader modus operandi. Yeah. Um, so it's actually not that unusual for a film as kind of um, left of field as the canyons to emerge from him in the first mm. place. Although we've got very different notions of of kind of what the modern day Schrader is. But yeah, yeah I'll, I'll pass it back. To, I'll pass it back to you for the same question because it is a really interesting opening gambit, an interesting question. But for me, I think Schrader is the one whose authorial voice feels most dominant in the in the final product. See, that's that's interesting because I, I kind of I agree 
but I feel like he's tried to adapt a Brett Easton Ellis novel into a Schrader film and has totally failed and as such gives it that sort of feeling of like I'm not entirely sure of who is in control of this but because of that it allows these different avenues to sort of like come through the cracks of the movie like it allows you to be like this is a showpiece performance for Lindsay Lohan not necessarily a showpiece of like quality acting but of her acting and of James Dean's acting mm. and of Brett Easton Ellis's writing and Schrader's sort of authorial voice through his um, filmic style and you know pacing and whatnot I don't actually feel like there is like a clear voice on this and I think that a part of the reason for that is that it was done in this production mode which I now think is kind of dead to Schrader and I think he was it was mm. dying it was dying like on the vine anyway but doing this film kind of like put the nail in the coffin like that okay I don't know how to really go into it's, this. it's a death and a rebirth for Schrader at the same time yeah it, yeah it kind of is it kind of is because when he made this film he then toured it and you know, went to festivals and whatever else, and um, he met rejected Charles... by some prominent ones as well. <laughs> yes, yes, very much rejected, but played Venice, which is like you know the oldest yeah. film festival, and is where films go now to launch their Oscar campaigns and whatever else. But you know, That's but, right. yeah, but um, he met Paul Pavelkovsky during the that sort of um, period of um, uh, promotion, and he was talking to him about it and Pavelkovsky said you can still make the films you want to make but you just have to do it in half the time with half the budget and that's where First Reformed mm. came from and then that was like this rebirth into his sort of cinema I mean I know he did The Dying of the Light which he lost control uh, was it Dog Eat Dog which is not a good movie in my mind yes Dog Eat Dog um, sure so again it was this start of like he needed to go through these so that he could get to this late period masterpiece where now he's like a internet mm. meme of like, you know, cinema's granddad, you know, who um, sort of comes down yeah. from the mountaintop, dazed on Ambien, <laughs> and making like weird remarks about movies. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I just it, it's it's an, it's a hard one to pass. It's a very hard movie to watch. It's a very hard movie to digest, um, but it's a wonderful movie to sit with. Should I just, by the way, just we know mm. we're not we're not a plot podcast, but we're we should go no. over. We, I'll read the letterbox synopsis, which is, this is hilarious. The discovery of an illicit love affair leads two young Angelinos on a violent, sexually charged tour through the dark side of human nature. Now, if ever there was a bland AI-generated Brett Easton Ellis novel like description, <laughs> that is it. Let me start with Ellis. Important question, are you a Brett Easton Ellis guy? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. Massive. Well, yeah, I guess so. Massively, I think. Um, yeah. In a way that I guess is a little bit kind of cringe to admit, I suppose, in a way. I, th yeah. I, think, I think it's interesting with Brett is that he, he kind of started out as a a very kind of successful kind of like outsider artist, which is something we talked about um, on the first podcast, um, kind of novelist. Uh, and that, that 
that was I think he was I think he was really genuinely great in that mold like re- really good like I, I think uh, I've I've only read two of his novels um the two um most successful and acclaimed ones which are Less Than Zero and uh, American Psycho yeah um so I'm not like best place to judge him across his entire oeuvre mm. um but I do, I do think I do think when when he kind of began um he was kind of unimpeachable um at mm. depicting that milieu there's you know there's you could maybe say there was like a courting of hollywood with with some of the with some of the projects but then courting of hollywood in a time where those projects were very controversial and would yeah. never be made today um and i love that the canyons feels like a kind of like natural endpoint to those kind of projects where the characters are very effectless and very uh, dead, uh, you know, spiritually and and emotionally. Um, yeah. But he's but there's an obvious. I think I think the difference between something like his earlier work and the Canyons is that he's making a very well. Actually, it's probably true of the Canyons too. But there's such a clear thematic point which is almost sledgehammered mm. in stuff like Lesson Zero and uh, American Psycho that I think critics really responded well to. And this is why I really like the fact that he teamed up with Schrader on the Canyons and what the Canyons ended up becoming is that even though you could you could definitely argue that the themes are sledgehammered, they're done in such a way that it's like kind of courting hate. Mm. And there's so there's there, there's such a not a disinterest, but there's there's certainly a there's certainly like a stylistic remove um, that is is there's almost like a self-loathing aspect to to the canyons which i think echoes in the work of a lot of what schrader had had made previously Mm. and certainly the kind of metafictional um projects where brett snellis was clearly being becoming bored by the form of the novel yeah and wanting to move into hollywood and even kind of a meta commentary on how um how kind of numbing and how empty and hollow he found that experience as Mm. well um, I've I've gone off on such a tangent. I've forgotten your original question, but I am a big fan, and that was it. I, I'm a big fan of, of Brett's original novels. I think he's analogous to Martin Amos's work in the UK. Mm. I think he's on that level of literary quality. And then I think you and I have discussed it in the past off pod as well that we're big fans of uh, of the podcast as well, which I thought was brilliant. You know, he got yeah. some great guests on there. I love Brett in film crit- critic mode. I find myself disagreeing with him far more often than I agree with him oh, but I, I like that um, I got a bit tired you know, of the I, 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 lo- I got a bit tired of like the oh American cinema is dead and blah 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 that type of thing it's like yeah that, the post empire yeah, kind of thing I, that he got yeah, really so look, fixated on yeah yeah like looking through the lens of cinema of just through one national cinema and I know it's your national, <laughs> yeah I know it's your national which the canyons is so conversant with as well by the way isn't yes. it it's so it's yeah. such a it's such a piece with that thing that you're saying is you know not an interesting thing that he uh, uh, an interesting obsessional fixation that he really went down. Mm. I love the fact that the canyons even kind of incorporates a bit of that as well. But I guess for you, what what was it that you found like distasteful about that, or what was your general take on Brett by the time you ended up coming to this film? I mean, I have read I read Less Than Zero, American Psycho, uh, Glamorama. Um, What's the sequel to Less Than Zero? It's called, is it um, Imperial Bedrooms? 
Uh, I read that yeah, as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I've read those four. Oh, Rules of Attraction as well, which obviously spawned a, oh, an, yeah. an excellent movie by Roger Avery. <laughs> I'm a big fan of that movie. You can dump on me all you want. I really like that movie. <laughs> it's got some incredible sequences in it, like with great needle drops. Uh, and I really do like that movie a lot. Um, nice. But, um, yeah, it was... Yeah, so I was a fan of the books. Um, I mean, I haven't read a Bret Easton Ellis novel in... Fuck. Like, how long now have I read one of those? Like, not since my yeah. te- teenage years, I guess, actually, now that I think about it. Maybe 19? Likewise. Yeah. Likewise. So, my, my, friend, my friend did his uh, dissertation on um, comparing Amos's money to American Psycho and it, it, it oh, seems damn. I mean it, it was kind of it was kind of trite you know we were it is you yeah, know 1920 yeah. when he was doing that but I, I still I still think and not even looking at it through a nostalgic lens I still think those texts like have a lot of resonance and kind of stand the test of time better than a lot of the things that not only come out today but we're trying you know to kind of critique or did you analyze um, kind of similar social stratas and milieus do you remember the martin amos the adaptation of amos's money that nick frost was in the bbc i do yeah, yeah. The, wasn't that a bbc one yeah yeah, yeah i do of course God, that, that failed <laughs> Fuck, you know. in my mind like in terms of an adaptation <laughs> oh yeah it just it, it just did yeah it, if you had to it, it if so you had to define amos's art yeah Sorry, go on. It was very. It was a very chintzy piece of work. I thought, like it was. It, it, was, it felt very yeah. cheap, and it just. I don't know. Money. I know it has. It is a kind of like about tackiness in a way. Like it's. It has got a tacky quality to it. Uh, but yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It needed like a bit more like what, depth to the production for my well, who, mind. Who, who was the director who did American Psycho? Is it? Is it Mary Harron? Yeah, yeah, Mary Harron. Is that her name? Yeah. Yeah. So. Mary ha- Mary Harron's treatment of American Psycho is really brilliant for me. Yes, and it's almost as edgy and as comedic. Like that—that's probably the the element that I respond to best in her adaptation is that she really draws out the kind of like blackly comic elements of the novel uh, in a way that I think is you know cinematically rich and 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 f- you know formally accomplished as well. I think she really knocks out the park with that. Mm. And some and and I would define and the reason why I like and still respond quite well, I think, to Amos's work and to Ellis's work from that time, is that um, the satire is very on point. The prose is very aesthetic and accomplished, and you know is informing uh the themes of of the novel so the style and the and the themes are kind of working very well in tandem so the adaptations of the work that don't work for me such as that bbc adaptation mm. they just lose all the edge of of the original text and yeah that that's probably the one of the more egregious examples is that fucking god awful money adaptation <laughs> which is like lacking in any kind of tooth or or edge yeah, I mean, that's not something I could really accuse this movie of, but the thing is, is that it's got these really, <laughs> yeah. it's got these really, like, long, meandering moments to it. So we'll, we'll sort of, like, start to pick through the film a bit here. And on my sure. rewatch of it, um, for this pod, that first scene is, like, oh, my Lord, like, laboriously long and just does not suit the Schrader style of direction. <laughs> Like it was, it was just like, oh my days! And like, 
I, I, I don't know. It just went on for ages. But then when I was watching, I'm like, but this is kind of brilliant because the performances in it weren't great. But the thing is, is that they're all kind of performing for each other. And like the one authentic sort of bit in it is Lindsay Lohan, where she's kind of like, can you like not like talk about our private life to these people? Whereas he has to be like all like blasé and cool about it, you know, and they have to be like, oh, I'm not definitely freaked out by that. Oh, that's cool. And they're kind of all performing for each other, except for Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. Like her character. You know, just just yeah, just on. to cut you off from a point because I'm sure you can develop on this as well, but it, it's just a callback from an episode we did um, uh, previously around Showgirls. You know that we both kind of argued that one of the the things that we liked about Showgirls was the fact that Berkeley's performance, despite being kind of objectively a little bit wayward and and incompetent, mm. is one of the best assets of the film itself. Yes, because of, because of how because of how it kind of meta uh, reflects the kind of the film's own making and then becomes kind of part and parcel of what the film's trying to be. Mm. But but on a level of maybe objective incompetence, what I think Lindsay's performance does in this is quite interesting. I think it's like similar in that there's a lot of echoes in, you know, sometimes it's really on the nose. Like some of her dialogue is like, I don't want to make films anymore, like, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But 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 there is from a from a kind of textual level and an analysis level, there's a performance that she gives that echoes the creation of the film itself which i think is is interesting and i think they incorporate that well but then she also turns out to be like the the most objective best element of the film yes. rather than berkeley who is the objective worst you know what i mean yeah yeah i know what you mean i know what you mean like she's kind of performing outside the film but ends up becoming like as you say the best thing about it i mean there's that brilliant scene yeah. where, where you like when she goes to the ex-girlfriends flat to talk to her about her relationship to the um what's the james dean character called christian which i presume is a, a christian refer- yeah which i presume is a reference to christian gray from the 50 shades of gray um, <laughs> because he, he, i had not thought about that but yeah i i think brett east Nice was like james dean should play christian gray like that's what he thought. Like he he would have been the right. Person. That's right. He was. We we both read the New York Times profile, haven't we? And oh, I think so that good. was one of his. Um, oh, it's one. Of, it's one of the best. I w- I wish you know. Obviously, a film like The Canyons has a very fascinating kind of like lore and mythos around its own production, mm. and we'll definitely get into that more as we go. Um, but that it, just as a piece of writing, like I just wish like every film mm. had kind of a treatise and a the and a. And a and a deconstruction that kind you know, of uh, impressive. It reminded me of. But yeah, you're right. Just go on. There's a, there's a profile on Guillermo del Toro that's in the New Yorker, that is like absolutely savage because it's it's basically just like get out of this fat nerd. He has his own house with his like <laughs> toys in there. Oh, get out of this. He had a gastric band, but it didn't work, so he's still fat. <laughs> Like, look at him, he's fat. Like and that's the whole, like, tone Jesus. of it. And I was just like, Jesus, Jesus this is a bit harsh. I mean, I know he stinks, but, like, you know, it's no, no need to, like, go back to <laughs> no, I don't know. But, um... Yeah, we talk about his work, not the, you know, his yeah, literal ex- fucking yeah, exactly. smell. That's awful. Exactly. Exactly. You can say his work's bloated, yeah. but Jesus, no need to go on in his actual gut. But anyway, what, what points am I trying to make here? Yes, that... Pr- yeah, I would love, like, every, like significant film that comes out i would just love 
like an article that goes into the pre-production production yes all that yeah i just like oh my god i would just love that for that level of detail it, it, i I, I would recommend that to all the listeners and we should probably even put that as a link in the in the mm. piece because more yeah, so more so more so than the way that in previous episodes we've kind of focused in on certain readings of the film that have resonated with us I and I don't this isn't even a really a, a critical analysis of the film whatsoever it is literally uh, a, a documentary like play-by-play from the minute that Schrader and uh, Ellis and uh, and Pope meet Lohan up until the point where the film is out. And it's like the level of detail in it is just staggering, oh isn't it? God. So, yeah, I'd really recommend that as a companion piece. If if you, if you like our ridiculous musings on this ridiculous film, then yeah. that that is definitely worth checking out, I think. Oh, for sure. There's, there's a great bit of the psychology as well of the casting of Lohan. Because she didn't turn up mm. for stuff, and then she turned up for table reasons. She crossed out certain actors' names and put a list of five actors that she would work with. And then, like Schrader, has to deal with this thing of like, right, I'm gonna have to sack her. Like, I can't work with her. And then she's banging on his hotel room door, like crying, like please let me in. <laughs> and he ignored her, and she was outside sobbing for like two hours because she probably knew like shit, my career might actually be done now that I've been kicked off of this. He had another actress yeah. wait- waiting to work who was in Paris, who was going to come over and fly over. I have no idea who that is. I would daren't speculate who it is, but, you know, if it was someone like Leah Sadu, I think, Jesus, Paul, you made a bad choice here. <laughs> Can but, you? Uh, <laughs> um, but, yeah, and then he had to, like, he showed the reading that the French actress did and then what Lindsay Lohan did, and all the crew cast were like, oh, Lindsay's is clearly better. And it was that moment mm. there where it's just like, I've lost the movie. I have to cast her. She's gr- she's going to be great, and Paul thought he was going to be great, and it yeah. just just does not work on like a like a production level anymore. And she's got the upper hand over him. She doesn't want to do certain things. And that scene that I'm talking about when she goes to visit the friends or the ex girlfriends who ends up getting murdered by Christian at the end, where like she's supposed to be pretend sipping on wine, but she actually just drinks the wine instead and gets progressively more drunk throughout the scene, even though her character's supposed to be sober. And the other woman's supposed to be drunk. Her drunk acting is not as convi- <laughs> is not convincing at all. Looks like she's kind of just got like something a bit wrong with her, rather than like you know she's actually drunk. Whereas Lindsay is actually drunk, trying to be sober, and it's like this <laughs> mad dichotomy going on there of performances. Um, and do you know what? Actually, this film is actually a really good example of a f- of a film being a document of its own production. Like I think that this yeah, is a great example so. of that. Maybe the best that I can think of. Um, Showgirls has a lot of that in it where a lot of uh, the elements of it kind of function metatextually as, a, as, as, a, as an allegory of the making of the film itself. Mm. But I think The Canyons is the one where that is not only more prominent, but also, I don't know, just so such a rich element of the text and such a such an on-the-surface like thing. Yeah. Like, it's not just like... I I can't really imagine watching this film and finding a lot in it or a lot about it that really kind of works for people of our kind of, you know, uh, inclination without mm. kind of engaging with that. So so from that from that side of things I do think it, a lot of that is quite deliberate. Mm. And the casting of Lindsay as argued by the piece as you've just kind of um articulated for for everyone is 
it 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 just it kind of just made sense like for mm. this project but then there are certain lines in the in the movie itself which seem to feel like they were written for her as well so i guess you could argue there's like the serendipity of 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 it or whether they just thought you know what now she's in the movie you know let's kind of build the movie around her and that kind of um tension between like, are they manipulating her to get this performance because she's clearly the most interesting thing about mm. it um, as they're making it? Or is it a case of, you know, she's she just embodies a lot of the themes and we're lucky to have her, you know? There's a lot of that tension going on in the film, I think. Do you actually like this film? Like, when you watch <laughs> it, do you, do you feel a sense of pleasure watching it? Because, like, I was watching it this time and it was my third time watching it the first time I think I did it like everyone else, which was mine too. Yeah, torrenting it, and then the second time I saw it was I saw it at the cinema, at the Picture House in mm. Brixton, and then um, nice, and then yeah, just this time this past week, and it's it has stayed with me like since seeing it at the cinema. Mm. Um, me too. Yeah, me yeah. and like three other people in that screen, um, we all kind of <laughs> left. Didn't, didn't no one really acknowledged each other. Like we, no one laughed or anything. <laughs> it was it was it was just odd. But like there are certain sequences in it that just have like really have stuck with me, like the um, mm. like the the um, the first guy who comes round to watch to have the threesome with Lindsay Lohan, the James Dean character, and I'm just like, oh shit! There is literally just full on full nudity in this. Wow, they really. Uh, have like gone proper, yeah straight off like, the bat all yeah straight off the bat like then then no mess no messing mm. it and i think that kind of does link back to showgirls again which is the fact that verhoven is so aggressive straight away with the nudity and the performance in in that yeah that it's like you get onto the wavelength of it except that, that that's film, a good point that film yeah. has such impeccable craft that it, you go along with, yes. with this whereas this is so hideous that like you it kind of yeah. you're always at this disconnect <laughs> you're always at this like arm's length with the movie and i think they want that they want you to be put off they do yeah um it's is yeah I, I think it's deliberate i th- i think to go to go to your question like um i i watched it on release as well i had a i had a weird relationship with it um because when it came out i was very much kind of this like you know uh, late teens, you know, early twenties, um, kind of like contrarian, like hyper online cinephile, mm. and I really wanted to love anything that people hated, especially if it had this kind of like terrorist angle, yeah. um, which this clearly had. Um, so it was an interesting one, kind of revisiting it and, and and kind of seeing, okay, now I'm a bit more wiser, a bit mature, you know, relative. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying yeah. that's the case at all, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah. if if that's how I'm at, if that's where I'm at right now, like, how am I going to view this film? At the time when I saw it initially, I was, I don't, I don't think I had to put on as much of an affect um, or as much of a a need to be different to like it as i thought i probably would have had like yeah. i i think that the the canon stuff that i hope makes into the final edit when you were talking about it originally like how it's quite ugly like i found that at the time quite quite beautiful mm. um because not many films were really made you know in that kind of really cheap 
no. pure digital way and the films that the films that had been made in that style that I'd seen at that time like Love and Pop that we talked about already and Inland Empire like mm-hmm. I know it's obviously a bit more um you know uh, digitally upgraded visually than those those movies but it still had a very kind of like cheap look about it that I thought was really compelling and I loved the idea at the time of an auteur and a, and, a, and clearly a very well-renowned and well-known filmmaker through his script work and through his directorial work um, behind the camera, mm. making a film in that style. And then obviously you could talk about the productions, um, the production itself in terms of it being made on Kickstarter. Like it just, it just had a lot of, th- and then casting Lohan, it just had a lot of things about it that made me want to really like bat for it and really yeah. be its champion. And then the hatred towards it, similar to Showgirls, uh, that kind of compels a certain type of cinephile, where it's like, I'm going to see something in this movie that other Mm. people can't see. Um, So then contrast that or compare that to my viewing of it this time, and I still found a lot of the things that I liked then were still in it and still Mm. present, um, just with a bit more detachment and removed from, from that initial release. And I, I, I still think there's a lot of this movie that's very handsomely made, that's very kind of formally accomplished, as you'd expect from a Schrader movie. But it just has, it, it, it just, it almost courts hatred as well in the way that it casts a porn star. Some of it is just uh, some, some of it I don't think is deliberate. Some of it I just think is like we literally only had you know less than quarter of a million to make this film, mm. so it had to look the way it looked. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, but I think... but a lot of it for me seems quite deliberate as well. I think when Brett and Ellis talks about the film as trying to depict like the milieu that it that it's obviously um, depicting in terms of the kind of the deadness of Hollywood and the mm. hype at the time quite novel idea of everyone's online all the time because there's not even a moment in this film certainly in the first half where Lohan and James Dean's characters are not looking at their phones. And which was quite a novel idea then, which actually seems a little bit quaint now. Mm. Um, the, the 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 famously on the nose line of "No one has a private life anymore." Yeah, you know, that's yeah. all quite trite now. But at the time, it's like, whoa, that's so profound, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and it probably was profound to Brett when he was making it. But there's a, there's I, I think my point is that there's just a lot of a lot of that kind of like substance of the film that that feels very kind of. Um, earnest and authentic in a way that i think people misconstrued it as um because if you look at two two authors as we say who are responsible for uh, a famous novelist and a famous director and a famous screenwriter kind of competing for the overall tone of the and and kind of uh, end product of the film Mm. these are both filmmakers uh these are both um artists rather that are very derided um and are very hated um for for some good reasons and some some bad um all of their work tends to be divisive even the work that they've done that's a little bit more acclaimed tends to kind of divide opinion and this this film seems to kind of be very hyper aware of that um be a very obvious almost send up of its own creators kind of hang-ups and more kind of complicated aspects of their of their work and it just kind of doesn't give a fuck and i Mm. love that kind of like anti everything like we don't care like this is the film this is what it is yeah you hate brett easternellis because he's a misogynist yeah you hate paul schrader because he's a hack so here's the most hacky misogynist film ever you know on on the surface 
but you can still dig a little bit deeper and, and find some things about it that you like. So I think I, I respond well to that anti-authoritarian streak that it's got in the film. Mm. And I do think that the final product, even 10 years removed from its original production, has a lot more to offer than a lot of people still to this day give it credit for. I mean, that was the other thing that you when you were talking then that kind of popped into my head was how not timeless this movie is. You know, like people will will like criticize something like, ah, well, you know, that's gonna uh, that's gonna date, that's gonna age, blah blah blah. But it's like that's a good thing for this movie. It really captures a sort of specific time where, as you say, Brett Easton is writing, nobody has a private life anymore. Would actually like cut through to people at that stage. Whereas now, obviously, it's a bit passe. Like we know that, and now people have yeah. reacted in a different way to that, and now they have actually developed a private life. Um, you know, there's the idea of like, oh, you can have a second life now online, which is, you know, a passe thing to say. That's that's not an insightful thing that I've just said, but um, mm. you know, at the time of this movie, it it was. Um, I do like the fact it's it's dated. You know, it kind of like, you know, there was someone posted this on Twitter maybe a couple months ago where they were like, it's really annoying that in the '90s everyone was like making fun of music from the 80s because of like how dated it sounded and whatnot but it's like when you actually listen to it it's like it's incredible you know i know you were listening to a bit of mid-year before we uh, were recorded and um the uh <laughs> the, you know that's not like timeless how did you know that by the way <laughs> uh, i'm not gonna say that's uh, that may have popped up on your discord uh, i'm not gonna not gonna <laughs> reveal brilliant, to you. brilliant. Uh, but it's like that that's like you know uh that's not a timeless piece of work i think you can probably attest to that yeah um absolutely but it's got a quality and a charm to it that takes you to somewhere and this is what this movie does it takes you to this place in la where people didn't really know what way the movie industry is going to go people didn't really know how mm. casting and financing was going to go anymore because you know now that i look at it and i was a bit harsh after i watched it this time because i was texting you about it and i was like they could have done so much more with this movie. They could have done. They could have got more money. Yeah. We know we could have. And it's just like, yeah, they probably could have got more money. They could have got a little bit more. But and the production would have been a bit better. But would that necessarily have made the film better? Probably not. Mm. Probably not. You know, the the plotting of it was still probably going to be a bit janky. I mean, the whole murder stuff that happens when Christian is knocking off uh, the ex girlfriend because oh. I mean. Hilarious. It's bad, isn't it? It's like, bad. Straight up. I mean, the yeah. fact when he's putting the gloves on and it's like you know, like it's the gloves that you put on when you're washing the dishes. It's like, you know, <laughs> I guess he's cleaning up after himself. Ha ha ha. Whatever. But it's 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 you know, there's those little production choices where it's just like actually the fact they didn't have enough money gives it that charm. You know, there's that David Jenkins review on Letterbox where he fixates on the one mm. trainer, where it's just like, why did they have that trainer? And it's like, <laughs> it's probably because it's the only trainer he had. It was, I was like, oh, can you wear some like running shoes or whatever? He's like, yeah, yeah, I've got these. Perfect. We'll stick those in. And, you know, it is, it does have that charm because of it, because it has that little drop in production quality. You know, the restaurants that they're in kind of look a bit tacky. You know, but they probably would go to those yeah. places because they are a bit tacky. Um, and but do, also, do you, do you buy do you buy on. into that? Sorry, go on. No, no, Karen. you go on. You go on. I was just going to say, based on 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 that kind of analysis, do you buy into the idea that because the film is depicting the lives of very dead 
effectless characters in the way that you know other Schrader films have, and, and certainly other other Brett Easton Ellis novels have, mm. or works have, that the film style tries to emulate that, and the idea that from a uh, from a from the, looking at it through the lens of of how it was made, mm. the idea that you kind of invoked about them. Uh, which, which I think you introduced to me. I'd never heard of this before. That they rejected um, further options of financing for it, or, or other means of investment that probably could have elevated somewhat, elevated it somewhat in terms mm. of its at least its kind of component parts being a little bit more impressively mounted. Did, did you like that? For example, yeah. Did you did you did you find that kind of enhance the theme of the film? I think that's where you're going. I just wanted to make sure that that was yeah. kind of what you're saying. Because for me, for me, that is certainly the case. Yeah. I think this film, with any more financing, kind of becomes almost like too gaudy and too trashy yeah. to function. Whereas on the level that it's at right now, of this just kind of like really cheap as fuck experiment <laughs> for these two very uh, n- well-known kind of uh, authors um, to just like dip their toes back in the water and almost like create this like anti-art, almost like um, what's the word? Kind of like avant-garde piece, like, like statement where they're statement saying, about, about like the future yeah, mi- yeah, a mission statement exactly of where they're at at the time where they made it. Of like this anti-commercial, like anti, almost anti-everything kind of piece. I think, I think that that is enhanced by the fact that they just made it so cheaply. I think the film doesn't work as well if they start making it for even a little bit more money. Let's say analogous to how much money, um, for example, A24 gave to finance something like First Reformed. Mm. I don't think it works if it's made at that level, personally. I, I think, it, do you know what, actually, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think also the fact that they try to make it like a traditional movie with the amount of money that they had adds to that as well. Where yeah. it's just like it kind of looks like what those movies should look like. Because when I was watching it this time, there's the shots at the end when Christian is revealing to the Lindsay Lohan character um, what she has to do. Like you have to shut up. If if anyone says anything, I was with you. I didn't commit these murders. Blah 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 whatever else and there are these shots that are just done in the close-up where there's a close-up of Lindsay where it's slightly above her and then it cuts to the uh, over the shoulder to him where it's in quite a tight close-up and when I was watching it I'm like if it was me doing it I would have shot the whole movie like that I would have just done close-ups mm. and some inserts I would have shot it like that I would have shot everything at a distance and at a remove and I would have like basically almost like hidden the mise-en-scene from there like I would have, like yeah, it, almost actually. like everything blends into it. But the fact that Schrader hadn't got to that stage yet of, I need to find a different way of making films. It's like, well, I've got to get my coverage here, here, and here. I've got to get these shots here, here, and here. Um, meant that it's kind of just, it kind of looks like a movie, but it looks a bit wrong for it. Like it does, he almost doesn't shoot yeah. to the budget. He makes the budget stretch to what he wants to shoot, which is. Maybe it's a great not, point. Maybe yeah. not the smartest way to do things, but it certainly created an interesting piece of work at the very least. Um, I do also. Yeah, love... I, th- I, th- I think. Go on. I was, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm with you. It enriches the text. And I was going to say, just while you're on that point about discussing the kind of the formal technique of it and, 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 it, and not even necessarily just analyzing it in the kind of traditional way you'd kind of analyze the the formal technique of another movie, but I was more curious from your side, your 
an independent filmmaker who's made films, <laughs> when you're watching this film, do you see elements of it that you could cop or does it feel like only someone with the great reputation of its makers could get away with do you know what i mean like does it you know we were talking about love and pop in the in a previous episode where it felt like god this is so inspirational for first-time filmmakers who can't really work on a budget and and have to kind of improvise on the fly do you get any of that from this is that a part of the film that you respond well to in any way um no it it definitely tells me how not to do things which is also very helpful Um, (laughs) which is informative too yeah yeah, (laughs) sure very, very informative i mean i think i said to you before like i had an idea of how i would have done this film but i when i was thinking about it like okay i would have to do this and this it would require a bit more well a much larger rewrite of it to fit into what I wanted which is okay let's say they had the 250,000 I would have put a lot more into having it set in one location and actually my thinking was could you do this entire story across one night like almost do it like La Notte like set across Mm. one Hollywood party and have all these dynamics changing and have all these dialogue scenes happening and basically set it in this one party that's how I was thinking yeah. of like how I would have done it at this scale, but the fact, yeah, I don't know. That was more my approach of like you'd set it all at night, you'd have it um, set in mostly you, one location. Do you, do, you, do you think that would echo more because we can kind of get into this a little bit? But like what Brace and Ellis originally envisioned the film to be like, which was this like quite fast paced like. Uh, mm. Hollywood noir, like I, I, I don't. This, this is how. This is what goes back to your original question and my answer towards it, which was that I think Schrader really dominates the film, mm. and that Brett kind of had an issue with it. Although you know he's U-turned on it now, he he's quite a fan of how it turned out now. But at the time he was very much like God. Like I think his famous quote around it is that. It, it it's it was written as an hour and a half movie but it and it is about an hour and 50 but it feels like a three-hour movie because it's so languid mm. and it's such it becomes more of a schrader movie than the movie that he originally wrote which i think he describes as this like prankish um noir which i would take to be a very typical noir um with contemporary themes but then a little bit of that kind of like modernist postmodernist kind of humor that he's known for in mm. it and it and that that isn't really a good way to describe what it actually ends up being no. it's far easier to kind of analyze the film in terms of how it fits into schrader's filmography well, the, the and that's language, kind of why i made the made the case for it being that the languid pace of it kind of suits the characters though like they don't have a lot going on i, I think so yeah they don't have yeah. a lot happening i think it matches it perfectly yeah yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely like you would have their lives would have to be so like action-packed and like for you to have that pace and it's like he didn't write that film he wrote a film about people who were bored who were like having to make up jobs for them to do like she made up a job of like oh i found my friend an acting gig and he's made up a job of like my dad won't give me any money so i have to pretend to be a film producer like it's people like pretending to have full-time jobs like that and Mm. they don't know how to do it and they don't know how to fill their days because they just want to sit by the pool and it's like that's that's what yeah. they do and they don't know how to do it and it's like oh, okay we go in the evening and then some guy will come around or some girl will come around and then we'll have our threesome and then we'll move on and it's like they have this kind <laughs> of like no they do they have this kind of like almost like i don't know how to describe it like it's like they live constantly in neutral like they don't they don't have any real drive and then when they do 
they kind of have to like pretend that they're enjoying it like the christian character like when he's having yeah. meet- when he's having meetings with like other people working on the film it's like he's putting on a huge performance for them of like i'm this big shot producer i know what i'm doing and he's doesn't and they're kind of like oh god this guy again like that that scene where he's just like he goes to the, the other producer and he's just like i want you to have him come over tell him he's sacked from the film yeah and then you know you're gonna have him make him have sex with you but if he doesn't it's fine i just need you to get this information and this guy's looking at him going like what the hell are you talking about this is ridiculous like i'm not gonna do that but he yeah. knows if he doesn't do it the financing is gonna f- pull out for his film and it's not gonna happen for him and then and that, that's actor- why to me it, it work it works so well that schrader is kind of in- introducing this kind of uh, languid tone and, and, and pacing and style to the film because, you know, if if he really... Yes, he calls it kind of a postmodernist kind of like prankish noir, uh, but there he has, you know, written all these scenes where the characters are kind of... Um, it's not necessarily super plot-driven in certain scenes. Like, say, all the scenes involving James Dean where he's on his own, tend to exist just to kind of like psychoanalyze the James Dean character. And yes, that that mm. that um entry point into the character might be overemphasized or stylized by by Schrader's style. But I can't imagine that fitting in with like a jaunty like one and a half hour like modernist um yeah. one and a half hour noir. Yeah. Like that 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 seems to me like perfectly in line with stuff like that Schrader has made in the past. You know like uh, scripts that he's written like uh, Bringing Out the Dead Taxi Driver um, uh, American Gigolo where you do get those moments to kind of reflect on how empty the experiences of the character is so yeah. even though Schrader um, sorry Ellis might argue that the film is not exactly how he envisioned or at least initially mm. I almost think it's kind of like perfect for Schrader and I think Schrader really brings out those themes in a way that would not have been possible with a, a lesser director I don't know why Ellis said that in a way because he, I know, basi- he basically wrote it's strange he wrote a companion piece to light sleeper and it's like it's got so much in common with that movie you know and i love yeah light the Sleeper. la version to, yeah. towards the new york thing yeah, yeah exactly maybe that's where i got the idea of like you do this one all at night and it's like because of light sleeper is mostly mm. set at night and it's that's just, right yeah i'm just thinking like i don't quite see how we'd have got to that angle of we should have this bright sparky sort of noir film i mean why did they go to Mate. paul schrader then that's that's the thing that i don't get like why yeah. did they go for someone well, I, younger well i i think i think because the film was clearly on a trajectory that was you know it what it, it was very clear that it was going to be a bit of a car crash they kind of leaned <laughs> into that in terms of the promotional um you know aspect of the film uh, and there's loads of great stories about that. And obviously we'll, we'll link the New York profile because I, I think it talks about it. Stuff like how the, it was going to be at one film festival, it turned out to be another, blah, blah, mm. blah. But I think, I think like maybe it was Brett on the defensive, like almost trying to like to say, look, guys, like this film only turned out the way it did because I didn't get Final Cut and it was it was made by an artist I admittedly respect very much, mm. but it's very much in his style, you know, and it almost like a, a careerist move of him trying to say, 
I can still do this, guys. Like, don't think that this mm. is all I'm capable of because this is the byproduct of another artist kind of thing. And hoping that, you know, that might somehow kind of redeem his career. And then the U-turn that we talked about where now Brett is really positive around the film in the way that he wasn't when it first came out is probably a byproduct of him being, like, accepting of it and thinking, you know what, The Canyons is now probably the only opportunity I'll ever have to make a film with a mm. great art, with a great uh, director um tied to it and and working on the project so you know now i'll kind of embrace it but but maybe do you know what i mean maybe at the time mm. he was he was kind of def- trying to deflect a little bit of the disaster elements of the film i mean away he's... from himself and that might explain it a little bit because like you said i think thematically schrader is the perfect choice for the material yeah yeah i think so as well i mean i know that ellis said maybe a year or so afterwards that maybe he should have been the one to direct it and you know having seen one and a half episodes of his web series, The Deleted, uh, I can officially say that he was not the one to direct it. And by the way, I say that with all due respect. I say it with all due respect. Directing is hard. Like, that's not easy to pull that off. Correct. You know, and there are things he does well in that series that I've seen where it's just like, okay, yeah, he's he's got something here cooking. And, you know, obviously if I finished it, maybe I would feel differently about it. But it's like, you know, I, 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 again, it goes back to my thing of like, you wrote a script for Paul Schrader that Paul Schrader really wanted to do and then you got a Paul Schrader film why are you so bothered yeah. about that that's a very odd thing to happen I mean I'd love to ask him to see what it is exactly that he wanted why, why his version or how his version would have been different <laughs> I mean you know I, I think we, I think we have to if, if we're going to launch the pod into the stratosphere then we, <laughs> we have to try and get him on the pod oh yeah <laughs> was my oh. thinking <laughs> oh i would love that if we could get Brett on that'd be incredible oh my days i'll just ask him annoying glamorama oh. questions like that yeah i think we play to his ego a little bit and you know talk about the fact that we've released an episode which hopefully gains some traction online yeah. where we're pretty i think overall and this will come to this joe and I'll let you, you know, retain host duties and ask me. But I think we're pretty positive around it overall, aren't we? Like, I kind I think, of... I think despite a lot of misgivings and a lot of like... And yeah. how we find it a bit of an unpleasant film to, to watch. Although, you know, I think we've successfully argued that's, you know, by design. Yeah. I, I think, I um, as opposed to just a byproduct. A, like, yeah. I think we're pretty positive around it, I think. The, the ugliness is a, is a positive in my mind. Like, it's so mm. distinct. I, mean, I would this, say so. This is the thing. I can never rate this film probably higher than a three and a half. Yeah, I love it. Mm. Like I, I love this movie. It, it, it's, it's Me just, too. it's so wriggly and I don't know, hard to define. And I think it will probably, or I'll always stay with it. And I think I'll watch it again multiple times. You know, in the next few years. Exactly. Like, and how rare is that? I mean, yeah. how how genuinely rare is that? I think it's because I really like, want I think to you, love it. I think you made the point beautifully, but there aren't that many films from that period, certainly that seem to emblematize or represent something at the time, which maybe is a little bit lost now, but it's still compelling to look back at, that you would still actively want to engage with in the mm. way that we've done on this episode and also watch, rewatch again. Mm. And I think that is a massive testament to it, even if you know some of the surface level components and elements are a little bit, you know, badly done but i mean this film was not made for much money if if this film was made by today's standards in independent cinema the money that uh, a production house like a24 would give to to this let's say you know between five and ten million you know 
it could have mm. turned out very differently, you know, in a way that, yeah, could could have benefited certain elements of it, but I think would detract from the things that I particularly like about it. I mm. don't know if you would feel the same. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, as you said, there might have been a more slickness to it, but then is that something that you mm. want? Like, what American independent films have you watched from the last four years that you've really loved yeah. you know i know when people were praising that film did you see bodies 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 do you see that movie no i don't i've not heard of that oh one. it that was one. fucking shit it was absolute shit and like people were like this is a new frontier and in, in independent cinema and like oh, oh with how would uh, it's just like oh shut up just because they had a tiktok in it it's just <laughs> like oh wind it in no do not like that at all again there are films that i like from a twenty A twenty four is always the one that kind of gets dumped on because people think A twenty four is a person that makes films, but they're not. It's a production. Company, <laughs> like like let's, let's get that right. We can. This will be a constant reference for us. Is that A twenty four is not a person? So let's get that out there. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just don't think. I don't know if I'll if they'll ever make a film that will like, kind of like. Do you know what I mean? Like, if it's almost like something that's stuck in my t- tooth and I can't like quite get it out, like it's stuck between my teeth and I'm like trying to like fish it out and I don't I, have any, I don't have any floss you, and I'm like, you, yeah, I'm just struggling, I'm what, struggling what, to get I it think, out. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think, I think with A24, like if we're talking about how the canyons potentially, hypothetically, could exist in the landscape of, of films now. Mm. Um, and, you know, you made the point when we were talking about it uh, off pod about how it's kind of a miracle how uh, this ridiculous project um, and Lindsay Lohan essentially relaunched, like, the second version of, like, Schrader as this, like, acclaimed, yeah. you know, art house master. Yeah. Uh, which is absolutely true. Um, but I think if we, if, we, if we turn our gaze towards what the Kenyans might look like today if it didn't need to go to crowdfunding, if it could just be made by a production house like A24. I think, for me, like, A24, they've got, like, a really good track record of of financing some brilliant films from outsider artists that, you know, you and I respond really well to, such as First Reformed, Mm. um, such as some of the Safdie movies that we were talking about um, on the last episode as well. Mm. Or, uh, yeah, on the last episode. Um, whereas I think something like the canyons, like it would almost like represent something like reputationally, like damaging to them. There's the, mm. despite the fact that they do objectively like take some good risks in terms of giving money to filmmakers. I think something as like abrasive and volatile and as and 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 as like hostile to its audience as mm. the canyons would probably be a step too far, and that's kind of what i'd like about this film is that i can't even imagine it in today's landscape you've like, just even said though the landscape it you've just said it in yeah, the longest sorry, way bro. possible is that they don't make films like this anymore <laughs> like you've literally just said it in the yeah. most long long-winded way you've got to the point so they exhaustive don't. way of saying it but yeah it's right <laughs> no it's, it's true that they would never make this film and you know what i think that's a beautiful note to end our praise of the canyons is that mm. they don't make them like this anymore and they did only once. <laughs> they made one like this and never again. I used to say that exclusively about Titanic and the fact that I'm now saying this about the canyons like makes Wait. me feel a little bit uneasy. Wait, but how did you say- we'll, we'll go with it. Fuck how, it. how did you say it about Titanic? 
Oh, come on. What fucking Hollywood... Um, what what Hollywood studio today would invest like 200, 300 million in like a Casablanca remake like with like mad CGI and a, yeah. and a real sense of the old school like 40s Hollywood filmmaking megalomaniac with yeah with, with brilliant stars but I, I feel like that's kind of like an end of its era picture don't that's you? true that's very true you know what actually when re-watching The Lord of the Rings over Christmas I was all over that's Christmas another good example yeah. yeah I was just like they would never make a film like this again they, they would they cannot do it you know, I'm I'm glad that the Precisely. superhero movie's dying off. Uh, I'm glad that it's you know we're we're finally at the at the other end. We made it, everyone. High five. Um, <laughs> but um, literally, I feel like I feel like you know that um, the woman getting like kissed by the sailor coming back to New York from like World War Two. Like I feel like oh, I've come through the other side of this. <laughs> it's like I again I it's like yeah okay cool those are over but. Are we going to go back to Lord of the Rings, Titanic? Are we going to get those? Probably not. We're going to get Avatar no, instead. No, I wouldn't say yeah. so. It, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's a whole other episode, isn't it? But it's going to be the just the idea of shooting things with all green screen now, which, you know, I love digital effects. I love digital cinema as a, yeah. as a thing, as a new medium. But it's just the way it's utilised today is... It's definitely not conducive to those old school kind of yeah. swashbuckling, well, it's be- it's very romantic kind of uh, films. It's because people that run studios now are accountants. They're not film producers anymore. And so they look at that mm. and it's like, well, how do I make this? How do I cheapen this while still having people pay a lot of money for a ticket? And yeah. it's like, it's, you just cheapen it. It's, it's, the so, it's that Soderbergh lecture, isn't it? Have you seen that? Yeah, he yeah, talks yeah. About it? And he, he gives that really incisive kind of indictment of it by basically painting a picture of how it feels to be in the room for one of those meetings and you just think god there is no hope no, <laughs> unless not. you're doing it in the fincher mold as we've already discussed but yeah i've i've already dropped my star rating in the canyons it's a solid three out of five it will one day get to mm. a three and a half and it might tease towards a four <laughs> it's not there yet drop me give me a star rating yeah I'll, I'll give it three and a half i was tiptoeing between three and three and a half um i I think my viewing experience felt three, but then when I thought about the fact that there was mm. so much to, for you and I to discuss and how it really does feel like not only, a, yes, a product of its time, but almost also an outlier of its time and then, you know, projecting forward into to where we're at now, mm. I, I bumped it up a little bit because there is, uh, there's a lot going on. I mm. do recommend all the listeners to, to look at the... Uh, the New York Times piece about its making, I do, I do think it's a it's a fascinating kind of um, object of its time, and uh, there is a richness that I think you you've articulated it better than I ever could, which would mean that we'll probably end up revisiting this quite a few times in our life still to come, and you know mm. that's that's worthy of uh, of bumping it up a little bit, but yeah, uh, yeah, three and a half, three and a half for me. Uh, let's do a bit of any other business. Have you have you been watching anything that you've uh, enjoyed recently? Yeah, I uh, I finally caught up on a franchise that I'm a huge fan of, um, but I w- almost zero inclination to watch this one for some reason. It mm. nothing in the trailers or any of the promotional stuff really made me think. Oh, I've got to go out and see that. Which was um, the new Mission Impossible film. Oh, uh, Dead Reckoning. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of liked it. There's there's a, if anyone wants to check it out, there's a really brilliant review by Neil 
on Letterbox, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners are already familiar with. He's he's really gone gone to town on like the contemporariness of it and uh, the way it kind of deals with things about uh, AI and stuff. Which mm. which yeah, I, I genuinely felt even on first watch before having read that review that do kind of elevate it because it is a little bit of a sub subpar in terms of spectacle and uh, on a purely technique basis. You know, I think it's a little bit of a step back from some of the other other ones that Macquarie has directed. You know, Macquarie's a little bit of a, a mature on scene. He's not particularly impressive compared to some of the other directors they've had on the no. franchise. But he is doing some quite interesting things with the, with the themes contemporaneously. Uh, and that, I think, Neil articulates far better than I ever could. So mm. I, I did really enjoy that. And then I've been going through a lot of the Schrader... Um, the Schrader filmography that I hadn't seen. So I watched Patty Hearst last night, which I thought was fucking brilliant. I've never and, seen it. Uh, Light, Sleep, Light Sleeper on your recommendation, which was straight in my top five, which was just... I oh. mean, that that might be my favourite Defoe performance, you know. I thought his Ooh. sensitivity and his emotivity yeah. was just profound and, and really, really, I really felt for him in that. So, yeah, I, I, I'd put that right up. Even though it's very much Schrader by numbers, you know, it's almost like a, the pickpocket a, an urtext for everything that he's done. Yeah, it, and the pickpocket ending, of course. But, yeah, I really, really emotionally resonated with that film. So, yeah, that's been on my radar recently. How about you, Joe? I caught up with... Oh, okay. I'll, I'll just go through these three quite quickly, and then there's one that we've both watched that I'd like to pick up on. I caught up with the recent Abel Ferrara film Padre Pio with uh, Shia LaBeouf in it. And my point that came out from that was that Shia LaBeouf is the perfect Abel Ferrara actor, and he should never be in any of his films. Like, he should just not be... <laughs> really, it, it was just... It, it didn't work for me. Like, it didn't work... F- <sighs> I don't know. It, it... So, what are you saying? That he's too obvious for the role, almost. Like yes. he's an actor that Ferrera should gravitate towards. Therefore, he doesn't work on that basis. Yes, like it. It doesn't like work for me. Yeah. I mean, that film didn't work for me at all. Anyway, like I, I, I understand his obsession with it of like this, you know, this sort of like devoted character, this obsessive devoted character that most Abel Ferrara protagonists are. But uh, yeah, it just didn't really congeal for me. Um, I also rewatched Moonrise Kingdom the other day, and I've got to declare it as actually Wes Anderson's best movie. Like, it's it's so it's tight as a nut. It's beautifully crafted, and you know what? Actually, man, like Bruce Willis in that film, man, he just absolutely kills me. He absolutely. That's a that's a great addition to the Wes ensemble, isn't it? Having Bruce yeah. in there, like giving it a little bit of edge, where everything else feels a little bit more self congratulatory. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Last two, very quickly. Island closest to heaven by Nobuhiko Obayashi. Oh my days, man! You have got to see this movie if you've not seen it. The Island Close to Heaven. I was basically weeping the whole time. It was just so beautiful about this young girl going off to New Caledonia because her father, who died. Um, uh, had sort of talked about this island that he always wanted to see and it's the island closest to heaven it's in new caledonia but he'd never been there and she goes there to try and find it and she goes on this sort of like romantic tangent sort of adventure along along to these islands this sort of japanese tourist and it's really quite beautiful um and last but not least talking about tragic and beautiful i know you watched this as well uh, trailer of a film that will never exist phony wars the jean-luc godard film oh my I, god i don't want to go too much into it because we could probably do a whole five-hour episode i think it, we could just first, <laughs> first thoughts I, i've watched it twice um yeah so I, I teared up 
multiple times. Me too. It's just yeah. it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Listeners, if you get the chance, dive into a uh, trailer of, of a film that will never exist, Phony Wars, by Jean Luc Godard. It's just um, it's out there. You'll be able to find it. Uh, it's just incredible. I, I've never. I've never had 20 minutes pass by that quickly yes. in my life on both viewings. Like yeah. I just, from almost minute one, I, I certainly after the silence of the introduction and then it goes into the mute and then it becomes mm. like, you know, the, the music kicks in from that point on. Cause you know, the silence is deliberately discordant, but at the, at once the music kicks in, I was so locked in and it was like 20 minutes felt like a minute i was just so yeah in with that movie S- similar to the when i watched uh, adieu um mm. at the bfi where like when his films like kind of get going like i just get like hypnotized by them and i think yeah. this one which i didn't expect to have that reaction to i thought you know maybe similar to you that the emotional resonance of it being his final kind of work would have superseded that but um yeah i was I was locked in uh, as soon as it as soon as as soon as it kind of began to, fr- from beginning to end and uh, very very moving film and and loads loads to say about it as always you know Godard stayed stayed winning even in death absolutely um, right listeners thank you so much for joining us you can email us at ten tb hard drive pod at uh, oh sorry ten tb hard drive podcast is that it I can't even remember the email ten tb so. hard yeah. drive pod <laughs> at, at gmail.com it is pod well done joe well done uh at gmail.com yeah, you can email us there uh i actually haven't checked the email should we see if we've got any that this could be exciting what a moment this could be no well, no right now no, no email okay great okay excellent that, that was embarrassing <laughs> um, listeners next come on guys on twitter like give us some engagement we want to yeah. we want to start <laughs> running a a bit of a q a <laughs> please please um we got on our next episode we're not we're going to go back to our two films for uh, next episode we were going to do comrades almost a love story but thankfully we didn't because that film deserves its own time it shouldn't just be tacked onto the end of the canyons comrades almost a love story we're going to do that next week the film by peter chan um we're going to pair that up with the 2001 film rave macbeth by klaus knossel um i cannot wait to watch that that has been on my watch list for quite a while i am hyped listeners if you want to see those two movies they are in the link below where you also find the canyons um so you can enjoy those if you wish gareth what an episode paul schrader stays winning what uh yeah the canyons great movie what can i say is there anything more to say no there isn't it's a great movie (laughs) absolutely pleasure joe enjoy Absolutely. Now the master of this landscape He was standing there at the view With a sparrow of St. Francis That he was preaching to She beckoned to the sentry Of his high religious mood She said, I'll make a place Between my legs I'll show you Solitude. He offered her an orgy in a mirror room. He 
body hard against the sharpened 